If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In a world obsessed with Trump, alternative facts have not had a great press. This week, our speakers unravel the prejudice of facts. But it's a century and more since Nietzsche claimed there are no facts only interpretations. And 50 years since Thomas Kuhn argued that facts were theory dependent. So, is an insistence on the facts the prejudice of believers and their particular truth? Do we then have to give up the idea that facts decide the matter? Or are facts essential to science and progress? Taking these on, we have sociologist and co-founder of the Influential Strong Programme, Barry Barnes. Maxwell Prize-winning theoretical physicist in astrophysics, cosmology and particle physics, John Ellis. And finally, author of A Field Guide to Reality in Zed, one of The Telegraph's top 20 writers under 40 and one of Granta's best young British novelists, Joanna Cavenna. Thanks for listening and I really hope you enjoy this search for truth. And if you're looking for more on the topic, then please do head to our website at www.iai.tv for all of our podcasts and podcast playlists. And once you've had a listen to the podcast, then please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Back now to Roger Bolton, who hosts this week's episode. I'm going to start with you, Joanna. Whether you think that an insistence upon facts is, in a sense, a religious position adopted by true believers. So there's a line in a novel by Dorothy L. Sayers, which I'll begin with. She writes, facts are like cows. If you look them hard in the face for long enough, they generally run away. And so I want to look at the term, even just this little word, fact, hard in the face. And as soon as we do, we see like so many words, it's full of ambiguities and echoes and even contradictions. There's the understanding that we might initially have of objective reality, the actual objective truth, the facts. But then there's also a meaning from the Anglo-French, feats and fait, j'ai fait, this sense that something's happened, somebody's done something. And this suggests a subjective reality. And this is really important to the debate because it's incredibly difficult to disentangle an objective truth. There's always someone within it, there's someone observing it, there's someone looking at it, someone experiencing what's going on. So the combination of elements in this word fact, I think are really important to the debate. And if we were objective and trans-temporal and we could stand aloft and we could wave ourselves above this reality that we're all in and look across time and space, then it might not really help 
because we'd find that through the ages, many things have been hailed one moment as a fact and then hailed as a fiction the next. So if we alighted in the 1840s, for example, we'd find that germ theory was definitely not a fact. It was a fiction, which was really irksome to poor Ignaz Semmelweis, who was trying to propound it as a serious and factual theory. The poor man was told he was mad, which he wasn't. But then actually he got so insanely angry about being constantly told he was mad when he wasn't that he went mad. And so he ended up dying in an asylum, which is a very sad fact. Meanwhile, though, if you went off again on your celestial vehicle and you came back to the 1880s, you'd find that germ theory is a fact. And Louis Pasteur, who's the progenitor now, is having a much nicer time. And he's being awarded the Legion of Honor and generally being hailed as a great propounder of a fact. And this happens with so many theories, with the ether, which, as John can tell you, is a fact one minute, a fiction the next, then a sort of adjusted fact again, and then a fiction, with ideas of um, women not having enough strength to run long distances, which was ostensibly a fact throughout the whole of the modern Olympics, until finally in 1988 they were given um, parity and allowed to run the marathon, and that so-called fact became a fiction. So I'd say as we continue in our quest for knowledge, which is so important, there is this question of when is a fact a future fiction and when is a fiction a future fact? And I think we should look facts in the face in this quest. And we should also remember maybe Chuck Palahniuk, the novelist, his argument that you can build an entire wall with facts and obscure reality in doing so. Thanks. Barry? Yeah, well, in the debate, I'm going to urge caution in the face of facts, whether they're pressed on you as verbal assertions or pointed out to you as features of the world. But first of all, there's this question to reflect on um, about them, about believers. And, uh, and the question's too difficult for me, so I, I've decided to answer another one. <laughs> Um, oh, no, you get, <coughs> you get contributors like this. Uh, my question is, why would believers speak of facts at all? And they do so, in my view, out of a need to sustain their beliefs as knowledge. And they've got that need because shared knowledge is necessary for living with other people, as in human beings always do everywhere, and for coordinating the actions of those people. And it's this that makes how do you know a more important and urgent question than why do you believe? Even if you're a believer yourself, that's the more important question. How do you know? Now, a brief history of the world will fill this out. Um, in, You've got in, about a minute and a half. Oh, that's great. <laughs> in ancient times, priests looked to authority to sustain belief. And they invoke the epistemic authority of sacred texts or deified rulers. <clears throat> in enlightened Europe, philosophers rejected faith in authority and turned to reason instead. Use of reason could lead us all to a single truth, so Kant told us. But it soon became clear that the inner voice of reason spoke differently to different people and could pull them apart as easily as bring them together. Well, moving on a century or so, when groups of paid professionals called scientists first emerged in the following century and competed for positions in the hierarchy of occupations, 
they challenged rationalists to turn away from sterile, internally directed reflection, open their eyes and look around. Everyone has access to the world beyond the eyeball, was their view of things. And we can all get together if we look at that world and hope to agree on what the facts are, preferably the facts known to scientists themselves by direct experience. But never mind, you check things against facts that way and identify what you've checked as facts themselves. Well, since that time, facts have been widely cited as the epistemic basis of empirical knowledge although the credibility of this misconceived view is currently in decline, not least within the sciences themselves. From physics to biology, scientists now increasingly rely on models and on statistical methods as the foundations of their ways of knowing. And that means they no longer find it necessary to talk of facts or truths. End. <laughs> It was very cunning of me to leave the only real scientist <laughs> on the panel to the last, not least, I assume, to defend facts. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to defend facts. Uh, objective facts, not subjective facts, not sociological constructions, not uh, ways to keep uh, you know, societies on the same page. No. You hold up an apple, it falls. That's, that's a fact. Uh, if you do a particular experiment at the Large Hadron Collider, you find something, that's a fact. There's a question of interpretation whether that's really a Higgs boson or something else, that's still being debated, but you do define something. There is an objective fact there. So, yeah, I'm sorry to be so sort of old-fashioned and sort of 19th century... No, know, it's very charming. Yeah, <laughs> I, I may look like I come from the 19th century, but actually not quite. So, of course, you know, my anachronistic defense of the existence of, object, of objective facts has to accept the fact that they have a very limited range of applicability. So, uh, yeah, we can discover facts in the laboratory. We can, we can establish them. But once we get outside the laboratory, even if facts do exist, it, it can be very difficult to figure out what they are. And let me give you an example. There probably is a fact corresponding to whether Trump or Hillary Clinton got more votes in that election. Whether we can actually establish the facts is a, is a different story. In the, in the preamble, there was a bit of discussion about uh, Thomas Kuhn, who I, I think is, is a great guy. Uh, but I would take... The Kuhnian Let me just say, because I don't know how, how much any of you know about Thomas Kuhn, he writes a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where in effect what he says is the way revolutions in science happen is by the changing of paradigms, by the frameworks within which knowledge is uh, articulated, rather than simply in the fact that we get more knowledge. We get a different worldview into which, as it were, the facts get art articulated. Yeah, so I, I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that, uh, you know, yeah, I, I like paradigms. I've lived through a couple myself. <laughs> so so, so that, that bit of what he says, 
I, uh, I agree with. But, but the idea that, in some sense, they are arrived at, that, that, that facts are themselves sociologically determined, which I have a sneaking suspicion Barry might be wanting to say, I, uh, I would not agree with. The way in which those facts are uncovered, I agree, has a sociological element. But facts are facts. What I'm interested in is there are certain things, for instance, if I look at the sky, I cannot tell whether the Earth goes round the moon or the moon round the Earth. There are theoretical frameworks within which these facts always operate. Well, actually, this question of whether the moon goes around the Earth or the Earth goes around the I moon. I knew I was going to get this. Uh, you're going to get into trouble here. <laughs> yes. So, in fact, they, they both go around the common <laughs> centre of gravity. But it's how you learn that. You learn that. You can't learn that by looking. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the fact that the Earth is not flat is something that you can determine by looking. Right? You can see a ship disappearing over the horizon, for example. Right? Barry, do you want to respond to the implicit jibe? Well, all I would say is I had a fortunate start to my career. Uh, my boss had just made a, an atlas of radio stars, and I think it had 110 uh, radio stars listed, and they were pretty well all that were known at the time. It was a long time ago. I think there are about 25 of them still around. <laughs> so uh, I got the feeling that um, there's a certain transience about facts. And the, those that remain on the list, they've no guarantee they'll remain for all of time. They, they may uh, croak it themselves at some point, depending on how the field goes and what people agree on. Same when I went and studied genomics in the 60s and compared it with genomics 40 years later. You should and explain what <laughs> genomics is. To Ge them. Genomics is the study basically of the long strings of DNA, which are now what most, for the most part, molecular genetics, the successorous field of genetics <laughs> studies. Anyway, uh, they both show you facts disappearing all over the place. And I think facts have a half-life, and it's probably about a few years the half-life of a scientific fact, whereas if you call them that, I don't. I don't think there are any anyway, but never mind. Um, as, okay. as far as Donald Trump's concerned, just make <laughs> oh, the comparison <laughs> quickly. I wondered when he would arise in the, the conversation. The in a Trump tweet, if there are any, is about... It. 24 hours. <laughs> Let me start with you, Joanna, and widen out from what's been said, because so far, facts have uh, been largely an issue of the academy and arguments within it. And uh, Nietzsche, you know, 130 years ago says, you know, there are no facts, there are only interpretations. Now, I interviewed Steven Pinker, who's a psychologist who hates Steve Bannon. But he told me that Bannon did no more than read Nietzsche. So do we just assume, Joanna, that politicians are flexible with facts? <laughs> well, hang on. So I, I need to go back, though, slightly, not all the way into the academy, because that would be too far back. But I think, so the reason we're even asking these questions is because there's this 
we're all in this sort of hangover from Descartes. We can really blame him for a lot, I think, the fact we're having this debate. And this whole kind of hangover of dualism, this idea that there's this sort of world out there full of Trumps and Bannons, and it's all sort of over there. I mean, really over there as far as we can get it, ideally. But there's a kind of world over there. And then there's consciousness all the way over here, which is appraising and seeing and dividing this world into facts and fictions and apportioning. And this is a really odd idea, this idea that we're not part of the thing that we're assessing. And in loads of mythologies and theories and Eastern mythologies, there's an idea you have the knower in the field and they're completely the same thing. You can't extract one from the other. In fact, in many um, philosophies, of course, the, the knower is the preeminent aspect. You know, everything comes from the person, the consciousness that's seeing everything. And that's a hugely valuable tradition. But still, for some reason, we're kind of in this odd idea that you can just separate the two and they're not just part of an enormous continuous whole. And I think that's, so when you ask about these realities, you know, there's this, that actually I think is so interesting because it shows how so many realities are created. We get these words suddenly and they percolate into our consciousness. You know, the world kind of goes right in and influences and we all think all day ostensibly about Brexit, 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 Trump, Trump. Um, but that can be, you know, also resisted on very valuable grounds that you could also assert your own right to apprehend the world in a different way, you know, accepting if we have to then that we're going to in some way influence enormously the way that we perceive reality. You avoided the question. Are all politicians... <laughs> no, don't, are all politicians... No, yeah, I mean, do we just assume that they're playful with facts, politicians? Or is Trump something constitutionally different? Well, Trump's got an interest. I mean, so there's an interesting thing that Trump's doing, and that's why I think people bring in Orwell. People saw that Trump's inauguration was sparsely attended. That was an eyewitness, series of eyewitness accounts. That was people's subjective reality. They went to it. They said the stands were almost empty. There was no one there. And they saw that. Sean Spicer came so, so into the White that, House. So was that a fact? Well, that was their experience, you know, that was their feet, their fay, you know, they were there and they saw what Come was on, John. Then, <laughs> it was a fact. It was, ha you know, it was happening to lots of people. As a, in journalism, in journalism, that would be enough. You know, you'd have lots and lots of eyewitness reports, you know, there'd be sources. But then Sean Spicer came in with his supposedly glittering objective facts of numbers. You know, he came in with these absolutely made up numbers and said, these are the objective facts. Because they're numbers, they're really reliable. And he asked everyone to stop believing in their own experience, actually, what they'd actually seen. He said, no, no, I've got these, you know, there were actually fewer people numerically than at Obama's <laughs> inauguration. So that was an interesting reversal, actually. He was pretending that these were objective realities. Barry? Well, just to respond to this, uh, another way that Trump has um, handled facts could be raised. Uh, you might remember the notorious remark of Trump's uh, that a certain judge in California was a so-called judge. I mean, it's a brilliant remark. It, it, politicians don't do that sort of thing, but it invites you to think, what's the difference between a so-called judge and a real one? <laughs> because the real judge is part of the social order. What is it? And what it is, is just other people calling that person a judge that's the only difference so trump is as it were pointing to how people are constructing statuses through their speaking and he points it out beautifully 
And that is in great need of being pointed out. And if that's part of reality, then <coughs> reality is constructed. And the whole damn lot in the world of statuses, in other words, the whole of the social order is, if nothing else, if there may be something else in the physical world, but the social world that the Germans call reality in their language is socially constructed. Good old Trump. He also knows <laughs> that you say something and it becomes true. That sort of thing increasingly, that just by its reiteration. So that's and you know that's the kind of use of. There's a really interesting tradition of relativism, but then you sort of kind of convert it into a sort of political weapon where you say, well, mm. you know, anything can be said because nothing's true. So therefore, you know, I, it doesn't matter if I can't corroborate. So you say. Um, you know, the caravan going through Central America has Middle Eastern people in it. And you have no source, but you say that, and actually it kind of develops a sort of reality. And that's, again, something that he's utterly aware is possible. Well, look at the way he whiplashes the stock market. Scientist? Well, well, well let me you know, rephrase the question, I, or maybe rephrase the answer. I, I, I think that Trump has carried the art of being flexible with the truth to an entirely new level. And you have to admire... Uh, holding your nose, his uh, dexterity with, um, with facts. Uh, I want to ask you a question. So when the AIDS epidemic happens in America, for three years, the New York Times doesn't mention it on the cover. So here's a big fact. The AIDS epidemic is happening in America. People are dying left, right, and center. And the New York Times doesn't register the importance of the fact. Now, this is the most liberal of all newspapers. So the big question is, is also noticing and then discarding facts just as culpable as being flexible with the facts, Joanna? And then I'll ask the same question. Yeah, I think that the really culpable thing is to argue that there's any truly um, any standpoint that's going to be completely stripped of bias, you've just explained. You know, we would trust the New York Times a lot more than we'd trust Trump, but it can evince utter bias. And I think that's within journalism to accept that you're going to have a bias within any organisation. That's actually really important because otherwise you get into a kind of trading of absolutes, and that's the danger. You know, you have the sort of the ugly absolute on one side and then, you know, your own sort of virtuous absolute. And I think, again, that means you're kind of losing a whole philosophical and kind of societal advance, which was to start questioning these monolithic, ossified opinions that had become mistaken for unassailable truths. That's a really important thing to do politically, philosophically, you know, in any sense. But to sort of start to reclaim that territory. And I've heard people now say you can't be a relativist because that's to kind of concur with Trump because, you know, the Trump and the Sirkovian techniques, you know, the techniques in Russia of the theatre of absurd, they're kind of relativism gone, you know, absolutely off its rocker, you know. And so that kind of, I think you still have to question, even though, you know, yeah, there's an enormous use of that Relativism, of course, is a scientific term which was stolen. I'm sorry, I didn't do it, <laughs> it wasn't me. And, uh, no, relativity per se is a, a wonderful example of, you know, a fact, actually. <laughs> actually was perfect actually you're in the wrong jobs you should get up on the stage more often <laughs>
If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. <laughs> Barry, have you thoughts about this? Well, I don't think he's anywhere near a relativist. He, he sounds off with facts all the time. <laughs> well, that's what, he, that's what he says, so he's, his belief can't be the belief of a relativist. And the trouble is, of course, if you start criticising Trump, it's most embarrassing to admit that the criticism's got to extend across all politicians, and you start criticising them as well. So perhaps what we need is, in philosophy, which is sadly an eclectic topic, is a, an account of why some lies are worse than others. Well, <laughs> yes, which Orwell said. Orwell said, you know, propaganda's okay if it's, you know, for our side, propaganda. you know, and he actually worked for the BBC during yeah. the Second World War emitting gentle propaganda to India, you know, so of course you can say if Orwell even supports an element of propaganda, then, you know, who is without taint? I, I, I would like to come back to the intersection between Trump and scientific facts. Uh, and one of the things that I find most dangerous about Trump is, is not that he, you know, lies about the size of his inaugural crowd or lies about his income taxes, that, you know, he doesn't accept scientific facts. Uh, you know, the climate is changing. You know, it's a scientific fact that the Earth is getting hotter. You can have a discussion about, you know, what are the relative importances of the different causes of that. It's a question of interpretation. It's a fact that it's getting hotter, which he apparently refuses to accept for his own political reasons. And I think that's incredibly dangerous because it's a situation where if we just leave it to go on without taking any action, uh, we could be all screwed. I'm going to ventriloquise President Trump, which I've never done in my life before. <laughs> but what he says, you know, there's the Gilets jaunes in, in France have been wandering round with a poster that says, uh, you're worried about the end of the world, said a woman with a poster. I'm worried about feeding my kids to the end of the month. Now, these are both facts, to put it in your terms, John. So the really interesting issue, if I might ventriloquize Trump and I'm having to be inventive, he says, actually, the coal miners of whole parts of America are going to be struggling to eat until the end of the month if the kinds of decisions that certain kinds of scientists want to take are taken. Now, you can have different views, but the truth is, the woman holding up the poster saying, I don't know when, how my children are going to eat at the end of the month, is just as factual an issue, isn't it, scientistic? And forgive me casting you in this way, but you know why. Okay, well, you know, I, I, it seems I'm the bad guy. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you're the good guy. <laughs> so, you know, the fact is that the production of coal in the United States is going down anyway. And whatever... Trump does, does nothing to reverse that trend. And it's going down for all sorts of uh, economic and financial reasons. 
And so, yeah, of course, I'm sympathetic to the coal miners. Has anybody else here been to West Virginia? I see one <laughs> in the back. Okay. Uh, but, you know, dare I say it, no, the fact of the matter is that, you no, know, the best way forward for them is to change to doing something else. I'm not a politician. I can't, you know, offer some sensible way in which that could be done. But it's certainly not Trump's way. How do you adjudicate, all I'm asking really, and Joanna, how do you adjudicate between competing facts? But then you decide, and of course Trump's made that decision, he's decided sure. on an isolationist, you know, sort of, we retrench, we go back, you know, we, we don't want to participate and make these sort of decisions at a global level, you know, we want to, and this was the great call of the election, wasn't it? And clearly, you know, with a bit of help from, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica and a lot of trolls in St. Petersburg, you know, this kind of advance the argument so so, so, what, should <laughs> so, I, so so what I'm saying is that there are these two irref, not irrefutable but, but is this, they're is both this a really a decision he has to make I mean you know well, it's a decision we have to make that when, when he claims this decision that he can either do this or this as well I mean this is a massive I only give you that economy. I only give I mean, you that as an these. example yes. what I'm saying is there are these competing you have to adjudicate. So it isn't facts versus fiction for adjudicating repertory companies of facts. Barry? Well, there are all kinds of issues we've not touched on so far. Um, I ought to say a bit of suppose about why I don't believe in any. Um, any facts? Indeed. <laughs> Uh, and I could be deluded about my own beliefs and blah, blah. And some people think all is illusion and so forth, which is an interesting idea. Um, but, you know, if you, if you want to take a look at the key thing about facts um, as they're postulated or referred to by other people in, in theories and models, the key thing is that they can't be evaluated as independent uses. Uh, independent units. They're not there as separate lumps of stuff with nothing to do with each other. You've got to look at the whole baggage and evaluate the lot at once. So let me um, give you, if I understand you, let me give you an example. So simply to say the Battle of Hastings was 1066 only as one unit of fact only makes sense in a wider context of the history of England and the relationship between England and France at the notions of loss and gain. So that's the degree to which you mean a unit of fact is only comprehensible within a larger I story. I didn't say comprehensible. I said it could only be evaluated. That or understood. Which? Well, that, that's an interesting one. But the key for the moment, I mean, we've only got a minute or two. <laughs> to know, the key for the moment is that you can only evaluate it all mixed up with a load of other so-called facts plus a load of other conventional structures that, whereby we've all agreed to keep something in the place. Like, for instance, in the history of physics, the velocity of light was kept in the place and wasn't allowed to be different from what it was. And then you've got to look at the whole shebang and evaluate it as one thing. You can't do it separately. But facts in, in the way people talk are thought of as units that we can just 
look at very hard. Okay, let me ask you a themselves. question next. So in that sense, you don't think facts can ever decide the matter? No, it certainly don't. Ever. People decide things, not facts. But one thing, one last thing on this um, regime that we've been discussing so much. I do think there's a there's a really weird kind of aspect. Is Kellyanne Conway sort of playing with people as well, where she says something like, two plus two equals four, three plus one equals four, glass half full, glass half empty, those are alternative facts. I mean, the sort of deliberate echoing of Orwell, you know, his two plus two equals four is the kind of thing you assert against a regime that's telling you two plus two equals five. And that's your last thing you cling on to, that this is true. I've never I mean, seen a valid proof of it anywhere. I've had a look around. Various philosophers have had a go. But it's interesting that or Orwell, as a novelist, comes out as a sort of fact checker. He says, actually, I'm going to cling on to this one. And I just think, you know, when you're, you, you know, these citations, again, they sort of echo with this. It's almost like a sort of deliberate postmodern reference, you know, from a regime that feels it can kind of do this. It doesn't matter. It can make these sort of almost kind of dark jokes, I think, somehow. Battle of Hastings did occur in 1066. <laughs> That's a fact. It has nothing to do with so-called anything or a context or an interpretation. That's... Which calendar are you using, though? <laughs> Which version of time? <laughs> What's the meaning of that sentence, John? The Battle of Hastings took place in 1066. What does it mean? Well, no, well, the point that I'm trying to... I know what you're... ...trying to get to is that I think some people are trying to be too clever in terms of constructing philosophical systems which you know, can then be used to cast out on things that you know, many people take as facts. They're still facts. Do we not have to talk the meaning of facts? Okay, in other words, there's a different... 1066 is the Battle of Hastings is one thing. What is the meaning of that fact? There's the issue, isn't there, that things that happen in laboratories are replicable. In other words... Except in the Large Hadron Collider, yeah, actually, but where they're not replicable. At my Bunsen <laughs> burner level. Like well, you've got the Atlas guys and the CMS guys. But I can't build a Large Hadron Collider in my garden, so I can't replicate it. Well, I need that. a lot of... But parts. I can boil water and, and keep repeating it. It will always break down into H2O, as far as I remember. The question is, the moment you get into human life, into history, into human history, it gets much more complicated. Now, are you saying that when you boil water, it, it's not replicable? Even at that level, there are no facts. As it were, it is replicable. It's a really simple question. Oh, I only wish it was. You could okay, spend your whole career studying it. <laughs> so why isn't it a simple question? Because the, the sameness relationship in, a, in a, the empirical realm is intransitive. If you say this paint's the same as that paint, and then you go on and say, and that paint's the same as this one. You, you keep shifting the question. You with red paint and end up with green paint. No, no, but you keep shifting the question. Do no, you want not. to respond, John? I, I don't think there's any need. <laughs> <laughs> this man ought to be in an Oscar Wilde play, really. <laughs> I want to kind of draw what we've talked together. And, and Joanna, I had a friend who used to say, facts are free, opinions are sacred, which was to invert the usual view. In that sense, it's the convictions you have, not on what you base them. Is, do you go that far? No, I'd say, so, I'd say, so first of all, so many things that we 
hale as facts are potentially ossified opinions. They're opinions that have been reiterated so many times that they have this kind of hardened quality of being unassailable. So I'd just say skepticism and dynamic uncertainty are clearly useful. But I'd also say this idea that you know a fact has to be sort of proved physically. It has to be a kind of physicalist fact. That's also a very um, contentious sort of precept. And maybe the imagination could be included as a fact. We all have this thing. We experience our thoughts cause us to do things in the world, they cause physical things to come into being. So I just, I suppose I'd just like the whole thing to be a lot murkier and include psychological states, the imagination, the kind of realms of being that we occupy. So what well. is it, and, and then I'll ask the next, what is it motivates action for you? It's your beliefs? I think it's again, your... when, the reason I, I started with this sort of dictionary definition of the term was that, you know, it's impossible to extract entirely the fact that we're all here, we're subjective individuals, we don't even really know ourselves. Um, we kind of go off into darkness when we try to trace ourselves. Our language is mysterious, it kind of boils off into no language. We don't know where it comes from. So there's an enormous mystery, and this is exciting and deeply rich. And I think to confine ourselves into these very specific, straightened kind of circumstances and not to look beyond, to think there are things we can't question, I think that's a shame. John? I'm a scientist. Are facts essential to science? Yes, would be my, my clear answer to that. But you know, as I was trying to say earlier on, but perhaps I wasn't clear enough about it, you know, that, that's obviously a very limited area of human experience and endeavor. Uh, but I believe that there is that factual core there, which you know, if we don't recognize that fact, okay, can lead to chaos. And I think Trump is an example of the danger of that happening. Barry? Oh, I think it's an incontrovertible fact <laughs> that, um, you, 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 uh, that there are no facts. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've come to the end of one of those conversations where there is a conclusion in which nothing is concluded. But I'm going to finish, if I may, briefly with two quotations, both 19th century. One... There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact, written by Conan Doyle and Dickens in Hard Times. Now, what we need is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are what are wanted in life. Seems to me we're still having those 19th century arguments in the early 20th first century. Can I thank the three speakers? <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Barry Barnes, John Ellis, and Joanna Cavenna. If you'd like more on today's topic, then why not have a listen to episode 143, The New Enlightenment, which goes in search of a new enlightenment for the 21st century, which abandons ultimate truth altogether. Or why not have a listen to episode 142, which is an exclusive interview with Hilary Lawson, on truth in a post-truth world. You'll find these all on whichever platform you listen to the podcast on and much, much more on our website at www.iitv. Please do make sure you subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with our latest episodes and do head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review as this helps other people find us. Tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas 